So, this episode is a tough one, and another really, really difficult topic. It goes without saying that neither John or I, or the Spiritually Incorrect podcast as a whole, advocate for the usage of drugs in any form except as prescribed by a doctor. Neither of us have taken drugs and have no plans to do so. As will become abundantly clear, this episode is about creating a conversation about a topic that's going to become increasingly relevant. Okay, that's out of the way. Let's get to it. In 2019, John Hopkins did a survey of over 4,000 people who claimed to have personal experiences of God. Now, it might not be a surprise that of those people, two-thirds who called themselves atheists dropped the label of atheist after they had their experience. What might be more surprising is that a vast majority of those they surveyed dropped the label after taking psychedelic drugs. While Christianity and the idea of drugs never really seem to go well together, it's a topic that's becoming more and more relevant as more and more influential figures come out about the spiritual experiences they themselves encounter while under the influence of these psychedelics. Are psychedelics something that Christians should be opposed to? Or do these stats convey something else, something really important about the nature of these drugs and what they might reveal? On today's episode, we ask, what's the deal with psychedelics and spirituality? Welcome to another episode of Spiritually Incorrect. On this week's episode, we have This is Your Brain on Drugs, Meeting Muhammad on Your Acid Trip, and How John Met God Through Tooth Decay. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Join with me is Dr. Jonathan Lionheart. I am the walrus! Coo 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 choo! Coo 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 choo! <laughs> Does anyone know what that reference means? I feel like that was a reference to something. I have no idea what. <laughs> We're doing an episode on psychedelics, Seth. It's 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 time for Beatles references, excessive random Beatles. exclamations of song. Do you think our average audience member is like 80 years old? Don't critique me. I, I'm in a special <laughs> high zone for this episode, Seth. I'm trying to, to, to keep it real. You probably met John Lennon in one of these high zones. This, see, this is a Christian attempting to pretend to be high is, you know, I haven't really done this myself. And so I'm going to end up with caricatures and stereotypes. So I'm gonna be like, hey, man, what's going on, bro? Rad. Like it's that's what this episode is going to be full of jokes about is us pretending to try to be cool, even though we're just we're not. Uh, speak for yourself. I'm not the one making walrus references from the 1970s. 
Cuckoo, cuckoo. 1960s. Okay, the Beatles only had one album that was released in 1970, the Let It Be album. Am I wrong? Oh, I'm sorry. I tried to make it a little bit more modern and help you out there. I'll, I'll make sure and the talk Beatles about how much of a boomer you are. The Beatles transcend time, Seth. They are Such eternal. A oh my gosh. You oh are the God. ultimate normie, my friend. Okay, okay, I can't even talk to you. Let's just start talking about <laughs> drugs. Let's just get to our episode. Can you know, can we know God through drugs? Can drugs make you see God? That's the, the point of today's episode. Can drugs, that's the title. That's what the title should be, Seth. Can drugs make you see God? That's the title. I'm calling it right here. And in order to have that discussion, we're not bringing on in some stoner off the street. We're bringing in an expert on this subject. We've got Dr. Sarah Lane Ritchie. Dr. Lane Ritchie received her BA in philosophy and religion from Spring Arbor University, an MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary, and a Master's of Science in Science and Religion from the University of Edinburgh, as well as a PhD in Science and Religion at the University of Edinburgh. She then completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of St. Andrews, and then became a lecturer in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh. So this is an expert on the subject in order to help us tease out a very controversial and difficult subject. And well, I will make a lot of drug jokes in the before and after section. I'll try to keep it serious while she's actually here. As a side note, I actually first met Dr. Lane Ritchie at a conference on an island out in the middle of nowhere. We took a boat out and there was a lot of people there, but the average age was probably about, oh, I don't know, 108. And so I was definitely one of the like two youngest people there. Uh, Sarah was definitely as well. She gave this talk that became the paper that inspired this whole episode. But before this, I had had a meal and at this table was an elderly gentleman in his 70s who was clearly on drugs <laughs> the entire conference. And he's like some retired scientist who was clearly tripping out the whole time. So we eat and he tries to make conversation with me. And I just, I don't know how to communicate with this person who clearly is making no coherent sense at all. <laughs> of course, then we go to this talk and I'm like, oh no, you know, she's giving a talk on drug use, you know, with this guy in the audience. And of course, <laughs> Q&A comes up and he waddles up very, very slowly. Oh no, this is going to be bad. And he looks at her with a, a glazed expression on his eyes and he goes, Thank you so much for your talk. <laughs> what do you think aliens would think of what you just said? Yes! Yes! He did it! Oh, that's amazing. He, he did. And it was, uh, I'll give him credit, it was the most coherent thing I ever heard him say. And <laughs> awesome. To Dr. Lane Ritchie's credit, she handled it like a champ. Of course, she's at first she's like, oh, I have no idea. And then she goes off on like, it depends on what the sort of aliens are and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And actually gave a great answer. And then the guy, <laughs> you think he would just take his seat, you know, getting his answer. Instead, goes off about how he loved going to Burning Man and all the drugs that he did at Burning Man and just took this as a, a chance to let us know his whole biography. And I'm just sitting there and I felt, oh my gosh. And poor Sarah Lane Ritchie's just captive audience listening to him. And finally she was able to like usher him off and get some more questions. Oh gosh. Well, I think for a long time, that's what this was. The drug discussion was just a bunch of stoners, you know, <laughs> though at least that's the stereotype. But it's going to be harder and harder for religious communities to not have these discussions because they're everywhere. In the academic context, people are debating what are hallucinogenic experiences. 
Are they things that actually teach us about reality? Are they basically hallucinations? In the science and religion discussion, this is becoming more prevalent. And I think especially with the legalization of lower level entry drugs, we're going to be talking more and more in these upcoming decades about drug use and where that may or may not overlap with religious discussions. So we're not pushing for everyone to go do drugs. We just want our communities to start having this discussion because other people are talking about it. And Seth, what's that face you're making? Oh my gosh, you're being so careful. Yes, no, don't do drugs, kids. Yes. Just say don't, that. Do, don't do drugs. We we want to have this discussion because other communities are having it and we want to be informed. We want to talk to experts about it and approach this in as Christian and informed a way as we can. You're not going to uh, get fired, John. I'm going to get fired, Seth. I'm going to get fired because I am the walrus. All I can say is I hope we ask a little bit better questions than that one dude did on that island. How are you today, Sarah? I'm doing splendidly. How are you guys? Doing really well. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and the research that you've done over the years? Sure. So I guess it depends on what sort of background you'd like. Uh, But my academic background is sort of unusual in the philosophy, theology, science space. I started off in philosophy and religion as an undergrad, but was really kind of focused on uh, biology and psychology. In my, I studied a master divinity at Princeton Seminary. We started really getting into science and religion when I was there. And then went hardcore into science and religion as its own discipline in Scotland in Edinburgh, it's where I did my PhD and my postdoc in St. Andrews. My research has mostly focused on the intersection of philosophy, theology, and the mind-related sciences. So spanning topics from like, why do people believe in God or not believe in God? So a lot of cognitive science of religion to kind of all the way to what I do now, which is more spiritual technology stuff. So how much agency do we have and what we experience to be true about the world? Can you become an active participant in your belief formation or your worldview formation or your meaning making processes? And uh, looking at a lot of like the empirical literature around particular spiritual technologies that people are using both within and outside of religion. Awesome. And how did you transition from that to today's topic of psychedelics? Mm -hmm. So the way that I conceptualize it, it's not uh, a transition at all. Uh, I think of uh, psychedelics when appropriately used and contextualized as being a spiritual technology. It's kind of interesting, actually, I came to the topic of psychedelics as a research kind of program through my work on the problem of divine hiddenness. So why do some people not experience that God is real, not seem to have access to knowledge of God uh, in any sort of meaningful way, which is sort of a classic problem in philosophy of religion and theology. And so it's kind of like through work on that and then getting more into psychology of religion and cognitive science of religion that I started exploring the various avenues that people have pursued as sort of a way of addressing the problem of divine hiddenness. Some people chose meditation, some people choose liturgical practice, some people have had transformative encounters on psychedelics. So that's kind of how I ended up in that in that space. So there seems to be a lot of attention put on psychedelics lately. You see it on Joe Rogan, especially. I've seen quite a few documentaries on this. It seems to be blowing up, even in the academic realm, as your recent paper shows. Why do you think that is? So certainly, I think it's being driven by the resurgence in scientific research uh, in this area. So for decades, after kind of the scare and the political crackdown on psychedelics research back in the mid-20th century, 
pretty much nobody was do- able to do research on psychedelics. And in the last couple of decades, for various reasons, the research scene has opened up again. Universities have been able to get funding for psychedelics research. Also, some leading thought leaders, some like very compelling public figures have become more open like about their psychedelic experiences. So like Tim Ferriss is an example of this. So sort of like on the social and like thought leader front, and then also on the scientific research front, people have become activated by a real curiosity to know, to know more about the science uh, and mental health benefits of psychedelics. So in your paper that you, you write on this, you focus on panpsychism and human flourishing. Could you maybe give us a sense of what you mean by those terms and, and how that relates to this discussion? Sure. And so I think the paper you're referring to is this, yeah, a paper I did on uh, panpsychism, psychedelics and flourishing. I've also spoken and written uh, in other contexts, just dropping the panpsychism part. But in that paper in particular, I explore metaphysical frameworks that would support a what I call a veridical interpretation of psychedelics. So what that means is that there's a reason for, there are some metaphysical possibilities and frameworks that would give one warrant to take psychedelic experiences seriously in an epistemological way. We might be able to learn something from these experiences based on one's philosophy of mind and one's kind of cosmology. In panpsychism, I mean, basically, there are like hundreds of different perspectives about like how one should define panpsychism, but it's basically the idea that reality is mind all the way down. So there's nothing that's not mental in some way. And there's a lot of just sort of trying to distinguish between different sorts of mentality and something being fully conscious versus like proto-conscious and tons of debates about that. But the basic idea is that all the material world is in some way bound up in what we would call consciousness, like that mind is just fundamental to reality. And there's actually quite a lot in the Christian tradition to support that view theologically. And it's a view that gets away from dualisms of all forms. It's appealing for a lot of reasons. And then the other part you asked about was spiritual flourishing. Spiritual flourishing, I think about in a very holistic way. I think about uh, connectedness to God or ultimate reality, others, the world, oneself. I think about transcendence and meaning making. So there are a variety of things that would fall under spiritual flourishing. I tend to approach it in a very embodied way, a way that recognizes the sort of centrality of the body and the material world and our meaning making processes and our, our basically our cognition and how we form beliefs about the world and concepts about the world. What is a psychedelic experience like? I mean, your your average typical psychedelic experience, what are you going to go through? I wouldn't say there's one type of psychedelic experience. It's probably, you know, if I said there, that there was a sort of archetypal psychedelic experience, I would get 500 angry, angry emails saying that I was wrong. People And people would be right in their criticisms. It depends. So, so a lot of this just depends on the mechanics of things, right? So what substance are you taking? What is the dosage? What is the context? So are you in a therapeutic clinical context? Are you at like a rave with friends? Like those are things are going to drastically impact uh, what sort of experience you have. But let's say that you're having kind of the sort of experience that is most often studied by researchers today, which is a sort of like a clinical setting. So you have spiritual kind of music or nature music or something kind of mellow going on. You probably have some like a blindfold on or this dark in the room. You're probably like laying on a couch or something. 
you've done a lot of prep work and are kind of preparing yourself to have some sort of important transformative experience or journey, you'll probably have some sort of pressing questions. So like there's usually when people intentionally have psychedelic experiences, they're trying to um, address a challenge or a kind of a pain point in their life. So a lot of the research is on addiction or depression, anxiety, PTSD. And so people with those conditions will bring that focus to the experience. And then others might be kind of seeking a more like a meaning making experience that's not connected to a mental health condition. And they might have a question about meaning in life or connectedness with loved ones or something like that. So when you have kind of a serious intention like that, the trips will often, uh, again, they're extremely varied, but oftentimes you'll, uh, there will be kind of a period of the trip that is quite disorienting. So there's a real period of letting go for a lot of people in the beginning of an experience as you're like, what they say, coming up on the trip. And the most important thing that clinicians will always tell patients is that you have to, you really need to do is trust, let go and be open. So trust, let go, be open. And a lot of people really struggle in the first parts of these experiences to really trust, let go and be open. They resist, they fight. And sort of like another idea in these trips is that you'll probably see things like you'll see a door or a tunnel or like there's going to be some sort of imagery happening. And the idea is that you want to lean into the experience. So if there's a stairway, you want to walk up the stairway in the experience. If there's a door, you want to open it. The idea is to sort of say yes to the experience, trust that everything will be okay, and kind of confront whatever you need to confront. And then a lot of people will have some sort of, well, depending on the strength of the uh, experience of the dose. A lot of people will have some real, a real battle, a real struggle of some form. It can be against oneself, against some sort of dark something that you've been fighting. And you'll feel, it can feel very unpleasant. So a lot of people will say after a trip, hey, this is like the most important thing that's ever happened to me. Also, I never want to do it again. Uh, That's a very common thing for people to say, change my life, don't want to do it again. And that's part of the reason actually that psychedelics are like anti-addictive because they are generally really not pleasant. And so there's a lot of hard stuff that will happen usually in the first part of the experience. And then oftentimes there's some sort of like hero's journey where there's like a resolution. So like when at this kind of the peak of the experience, a lot of people will be confronted with some sort of divine or ultimate love. Words always fail for people. They can never explain what's happening to them. Usually they'll start to say, they'll they'll come back with something like love is the most important thing ever. And everyone else is like, yeah, no kidding. But it's like they get a more profound experience of it. And it's hard to put it into words. But they'll get some sort of deeply profound realization of divine love or love is like the fundamental nature of all reality or something like that. Or they'll get a very clear insight about how their lives need to change going forward. That's very common. And they'll see their own bodies, their, their selves in a different way. So people who smoke will often get this sense. They'll have like a visual experience in the trip of the pollutants that the cigarettes are like putting into their body or something. And we'll walk away from the experience and never want to touch them again. So it's like, so you get kind of a a very multifaceted experience of normal reality too. So sort of everything that you think of as normal and kind of like mundane takes on like a very vivid and salient hue. And then there's like a long come down phase where your body, your mind is just really processing the whole experience. And that takes certainly hours, but can really take days as well because of what the substances do to your brain, really. Like you have much more, your, your brain is much more plastic for a couple of days after these experiences. So all of that sounds 
quite nice, honestly, like an experience of divine love and meaning and finding a new purpose in life. And yet you say that people never want to have this experience again. Mm -hmm. Is there Mm -hmm. typically a reason for that? Well, a lot of the normal structural features of our lives are taken away in psychedelic experiences. So time is very weird in a psychedelic experience. And so like in a normal, like in your day-to-day life, you're having a crisis, you know, the crisis will end because there's only 24 hours in a day and you can't exist in that space forever. On psychedelics, if you're going through a challenging part of the experience, it feels like you are in that experience for eternity, like like all of eternity. And so it's like, you don't have any, it feels like time is gone and you can experience an actual eternity of disconnectedness or loss of self or complete disconnection from the universe. And it's kind of like a hell, like pretty much, I mean, some of the worst trips I've heard are kind of like what traditional Christianity has described hell as being like. People usually come through that, like if they really like sink into the experience, they come out the other side of it and have something that's transformative and insights that will come out of it. But that doesn't mean that they would want to go through the eternity of disconnectedness and aloneness to get to that insight again. So it's sort of like any hard thing we do in life, you you know, it doesn't, we might not want to go through it again, but we can recognize it as valuable, like childbirth or something. For the most part, do people tend to come out the other side with that positive spin? And the cases where it was just an overall negative experience without anything good coming out of it or any lesson, are those rare cases where people have just a horrible experience that wasn't worth it at all? Is it a bit more of a mixed bag? And some people don't just not enjoy it, but but think it was not worth it. It was a horrible thing without a, a benefit. What, what's the ratio of good to, to bad in that? Yeah, there's, so there's some meta reviews of the clinical work on this. Unfortunately, it's impossible to answer your question because most of the experiences that have occurred throughout human history are not being done by clinicians who are writing them up in peer-reviewed journals. And they're not done in controlled settings. And so I can't accurately identify the percentage of people who are having bad trips. Uh, and are not happy that they did it. Uh, I can say that in the clinical setting, that which is the site of where all the research is happening, where things are very controlled, very intentional, there's a lot of prep work, there's a lot of post-experience work, a lot of therapy that goes on. In those controlled settings, it's far more likely that people will have an important life-changing experience than a negative worthless experience, but they put the work in. Now, I can see somebody who hearing this and saying, okay, this is all great. It has some positive effects, but it's all just a hallucination of the mind generated by the mind. Mm -hmm. There's nothing really veridical in that. But Mm -hmm. you seem to want to suggest that there's actually is some reasons for thinking that this does convey something true about reality. What are some of those reasons? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I want to say that. I would say that I like playing around with the possibilities here. So when I first started getting interested in the psychedelic research space, I was really struck by how few philosophers and theologians were engaging the material. And that's why I started getting into it, because I'm like, nobody else is, is taking this seriously. Nobody is dealing with this huge area of research that is like very powerful and potent and is like changing people's lives. And somebody needs to be engaging with the epistemology of this, the ethics of it, sort of the theology of it, if there is any. I would want to problematize the first thing that you said. I'm actually not sure that these days many people or most people would say that psychedelic experiences are hallucination. So certainly clinically, that's not the case because hallucinations are sort of like they're time limited. They're usually tied to an identifiable, diagnosable, like mental disorder. 
They are things that are not tied to flourishing or well-being in any way. No positive outcomes tend to come from, from hallucinations, and they don't have an enduring effect. So psychiatrists will want to distinguish between hallucination, which is like very time-limited in effect, is tied to a, a disorder that has very bad um, effects in other areas of people's lives, and tends to just basically not help the person in any way. Psychedelic experiences are different because they're actually fairly predictable. I mean, they're, they're kind of predictable in clinical settings, like the contours of an experience. We're often not surprised by the contours of an experience because it kind of follows like a similar pattern or arc. Also, there are really long lasting mental health and transformative kind of meaning making effects of psychedelic experiences in like positive ways. Like 20 years later, people will look back on a psychedelic experience and say, that was one of the most, the top five, it was in the top five most meaningful experiences of my life, like up there with birth of a child, loss of a parent, that kind of thing. So long lasting positive effects, changing kind of behavioral health outcomes, like people get off addictions and are, they really kind of are kind of experientially equipped to face challenges in a different way. And so none of those things apply to uh, hallucinations. So certainly something is happening in psychological experiences that's not happening in mental health disorders where hallucinations are a feature. So that's why it's interesting. That's why philosophers are starting to get more interested in like what the epistemic status of these experiences are. So there are a couple camps here. So one route is to take sort of the Chris Lethaby route. He is a, a philosopher who has written a book, a fantastic book called Philosophy of Psychedelics. And he's, uh, I would say, the most serious analytic philosopher who is trying to deal with the epistemology of psychedelics. And he wants to say, you know, it's a naturalistic world out there. I'm not signing up to theism. I'm not signing up to panpsych. I'm not signing up to any sort of the weird kooky worldviews. <laughs> He's like, I'm a good old naturalist. And I still think that psychedelics are epistemologically valuable. And the way that he uh, will describe it is, there be, is, is that psychedelics give people a different sort of firsthand knowledge of things that they kind of knew before, but didn't really know. His idea is that psychedelics give one access to knowledge that one would have already said in most cases that they agreed with. But in retrospect, we can see that we didn't actually know it. It's sort of like you might say, yeah, yeah, I believe so-and-so loves me. But if you don't actually really, truly believe it as real or as true, then you're not going to respond in, in a way that suggests that you do. And so it's this idea that you could, you know, you might think that you believe something you don't actually know it at the level at which one needs to know it for that concept or truth to become operative in your life. And then the other tack is to do what I kind of am interested in and say, well, okay, yeah, it might be useful as sort of like, just sort of like getting through my life. It might be helpful for me, like it might be epistemologically useful for me in getting the tools to, to live my life. But I'm actually interested in how these experiences that are so powerful might connect to other ways of thinking about the world, other models of God, other worldviews that would help make sense of the whole picture. Uh, because certainly psychedelics are not a new thing. For all of human history, as far as we can tell, people have been having mystical experiences, whether occasioned by psychedelic substances or other behaviors that we do with our bodies, like meditation and dancing and trances and fasting. And all these things are spiritual technologies that people have used to manipulate and alter their perceptions and experiences of the world. I'm, I like, I'm, I'm very curious about worldviews that try to integrate it all. So panpsychism is one. I'm interested in panentheism as well. Even within kind of traditional, classical, philosophical Western theism, there are resources to support the use of psychedelics and, and kind of becoming an active participant in your own spiritual path. So yeah, so that's kind of like, I'm personally interested in models that attempt to integrate scientific, philosophical, and theological knowledge into one 
So just as a clarification, to distinguish between a psychedelic experience and a hallucination, hallucination has certain features that are normally negative. They don't have any sort of positive role in their life that psychedelics don't fit the bill for. There's something completely different Mm -hmm. and that that the type of experience is completely different. Mm -hmm. And that's what's motivated these philosophers to begin to start taking this Mm -hmm. so seriously. Yeah, it was really the second, it was really the psychologists and the psychiatrists who kind of picked up on this first. I mean, because these are people who are used to working with people having hallucinations. What they saw with with psychedelics was that something very different was happening. There was a pattern of people having transformative experiences on these substances that then like changed their lives in really positive ways. And so they started, I mean, really the scientists were the first ones to be like, we got to figure out what's going on here. And so now there are all sorts of neuroscientific models for like what actually is happening. This is it's a hot area of research, like what actually is happening in the brain to sort of give people these experiences. And there are different models for it, but they're certainly distinct than what's happening in a hallucination. So I remember you mentioning something about how psychedelic experiences, what they do to the brain is they don't actually generate experiences so much as they stop the inhibitors. Can you speak a bit to that? Yeah. So what they're seeing, there seems to be a growing consensus that uh, our minds are kind of like low grade active all the time. And that actually keeps us from having uh, deeper, more meaningful, powerful experiences that are actually really good for us. And so there are a lot of, there's a lot of different work going on about like what's actually happening in the brain with psychedelics, different psychedelic substances, and they do differ a little bit. And so like one theory is that actually what's happening is that the brain is quieter in some ways. There's like less going on in some areas of the brain uh, on psychedelic experiences. It's not that they're like hypergenerative. The brain's hypergenerative of an experience. It's more that it's like just chilling out for a bit and just kind of like not predetermining your conscious experience in the way that it usually does, not like constraining your brain in the way that it usually does. And a similar model is showing that like the entropy in your brain, so sort of like the level of disorder in your brain is actually increased during psychedelic experiences. And that sort of raised level of entropy, the raised level of not disorder and chaos are not quite the same words, but like you're kind of getting at what I mean by entropy, right? So it's just, it's just less constrained in your brain. And it's like that kind of that in that insertion of uncertainty that allows the experience to become what it is. I mean, all of our experiences are generated by the brain. Like it's like there's, we don't have a single experience that's not at least being mediated by our brains. And so psychedelics are really no different. Like every experience you have, whether of God or like your dog or your feeling of being hungry, all of these experiences, if put in an MRI machine, like there would be a readout, you would see little parts of your brain light up, your brain would be produce, producing the experience. So uh, what would be far more shocking is if, you know, so we put these people in an fMRI machine and there was nothing happening, then that would be the real miracle is <laughs> if like the brain was somehow not involved in a conscious experience. So yeah, no, of course the brain is involved in the production of these experiences. That doesn't mean though, I mean, the causal, the causal claim is tricky. This is not a settled debate in neuroscience and philosophy of mind. There are people on all sides of this battle. Does like a brain state cause the experience? Are they identical with each other? Can some sort of like idealized uh, experience cause a brain state? So it's like, there are a lot of debates about this. Yeah. So that's a short story is that, yeah, of course the brain produces or at least mediates these uh, experiences, but we should be careful with the causal language. If we can get really speculative here, what could these experiences teach us about God, teach us about reality? Yeah, so I'm really drawn to models of the world, models of reality that are, I don't want to say simple, but sort of simple, right? So I think there is something to this idea that there have been 
mystics and sages and people in pretty much all the world face. Uh, I'm not saying that all religions are the same. I would never say that. But I think there there are some sort of similar themes throughout the world's uh, major traditions that would support that there are some things that we want to be able to say about ultimate reality if we can say anything at all. So like, I quite like the idea of saying that a fun, like fundamental ultimate reality is loving, whatever that means. We can argue about that, but is in some way love. That flourishing for all living creatures is a good thing. Like, you know, I think there's some basic that kindness and mercy are in some way values that we should pursue. Like there are some sort of uncontroversial ways of wanting to see the world that the that religions have really kind of made a mark, made a business of, of of really getting into hard. But you also see those themes, all three of those themes popping up again and again and again in psychedelic experiences. I think it's really fun to play around with this idea that when people have any sort of mystical or spiritual experience, there is it is at least possible, perhaps plausible, that given the work that they put into those experiences, given their priors, given what they're bringing to the experiences, that is at least possible that they are in fact having some deeply meaningful experience of something worth calling ultimate reality, perhaps worth calling God. Especially in these experiences where people have like life-changing encounters with divine love. I find those ones to be the most compelling because they're, they're actually quite frequent. A lot of people have this experience of divine love. They wouldn't often say it's God that they're experiencing. A lot of people feel like God is too small a word to describe what they're experiencing. But they would want to say something like fundamental reality is love. And wouldn't it be great if we had a worldview that could support taking that experience seriously, not just saying it's like a byproduct of wishful thinking and the drug combined, but saying something like, yeah, because our minds are connected with universal mind or fundamental consciousness, whatever, in the panpsychism model or in the panentheism model, all that exists exists within God in the first place. So everything that is minds, bodies, natural world, all of it is infused with God in some meaningful way. So on either of those models, uh, you could support the claim that, yeah, I'm having a psychedelic experience and I am warranted in saying that that was an experience of God. It's interesting because you've made a very strong case here for this religious connection. And to me, it, it makes sense to some degree. This is what churches and youth pastors are trying to create in worship services with the kids having their hands up. They're trying to create that experience of divine love and intimacy and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, do you think there's a reason the Western religious and particularly Christianity is so against psychedelics? Yeah. I could imagine a reality in which these could have been deeply linked. So yeah, I've written a lot about this actually, sort of the connection between the sorts of spiritual technologies that I explore and what uh, American evangelicalism has been doing for quite a long time now. One of the, so sure, of course, one of the first things people always say anytime you're having a, a, dis a discussion about psychedelics is you're just manipulating yourself. You are manipulating yourself. And actually, they'll say that about any spiritual technology. Like if I'm talking about pretty much every talk I've given where I'm like talking about scientifically based ways of enhancing the possibility or uh, sort of making more likely a possibility that you will experience God as real. Every time I talk about this, people will always ask, aren't you just manipulating yourself? And my response to this is always, what do you think you're doing when you go into an evangelical megachurch and there's a fog machine playing and the lights are dimmed and everybody is swaying back and forth in rhythm 
and there is a uh, very attractive youth pastor up on stage playing a four chord song on his guitar and you're singing the same phrases over and over and over again and those are very emotionally charged almost romantic phrases that are like pushing all of your deep triggers and wounds inside of you (laughs) like what do you think you're doing do you not think that this experience has been finally orchestrated to make you experience something very powerful This is something that humans have been doing for all of human, what we've been doing is for all of human history. We are constantly, constantly inviting others to manipulate ourselves. And I don't think it's bad. I mean, we use the word manipulation as though it's like a, it's a pejorative word, right? But really we're saying, you know what? We have no, we have no option, but to be altered by the world, altered by our own minds and by others' minds and bodies. And we curate experiences for ourselves. We go to totally emotionally charged sports games. We go to concerts that make us weep. We go on like romantic dates with partners and cultivate an intimacy with them. We go to movies because we want them to make us laugh or to feel something. We read novels that will like help us lose ourselves for a moment. These are all things that we're doing to all, to manipulate our experience in some way. And we tend to have some language for why that's not bad. So I would say that certainly something like psychedelics is riskier than many of those other things, but it's not different in kind than what we have been doing for all of human history. And certainly not all that different from what American churches in particular have gotten very good at doing and curating worship services to capture all of a human. So their body, their mind, their emotions to capture some, to capture all parts of them. If you're interested in this, I highly recommend reading Tanya Lerman's When God Talks Back. She's an anthropologist at Stanford who has uh, done a ton of field work at Hillsong churches studying exactly this stuff. Just as a bit anecdotal thing, I think one of the most powerful spiritual experiences I ever had was one time whenever I was stuck out on a dock having to hold a boat that it was in. And there was a sunset and it was a beautiful sunset and I got to watch it. And I had to sit there and watch it for an hour. Well, someone went and got the trailer for an hour. I couldn't pull out my phone because I had to hold this thing and watch a beautiful sunset. And I did. I had a sense of like a mystical experience. And it was one of the most frightening experiences of my life. It lasted for a good half second. And before I sort of pulled myself out of it, come to find out that a lot of Christian mystics did the exact same thing where they would stare at a candle. And I I had no idea that I was essentially accidentally replicating this old mystical experience in my own life. Yeah, it was. I found that out because I was so perplexed by this experience that I spent like a year trying to figure it out and finally came to this conclusion. Oh, see, I was really hoping the end of the story was you got really, really high on psychedelics, Seth. But okay, <laughs> that's that took a turn in a different direction. <laughs> not but quite, not quite that, that exciting. What I love about story is that you stumbled into it. And this is basically the story of human evolution, how we have done this like trial and error thing for all of human history and have stumbled across things that work, that enable us to feel this uh, sense of transcendence or connectedness to one another, or to God. Sometimes those things are not pleasant. There's a little bit of ego death involved. So it's fascinating, actually, that you stumbled into it and then realized that, oh, others have not only stumbled into this in the past, but have then turned it into a spiritual discipline. Focus attention, excluding other claims on our, our senses, and have turned it into like a path, like a discipline, but probably stumbled into it in the first instance. Just as a sort of caution against somebody going out and having listened to this and then going on an LSD trip, what would you say to caution people against just going out, you know, hearing what you're saying and then saying, oh, what Sarah Lane Ritchie is saying is that we should all go out and do drugs? Yeah, so that I would not say that. <laughs> uh, so Sarah Lane Ritchie would not say go do drugs. 
The spiritually incorrect podcast would also not say that. <laughs> Just I as know, a disclaimer. I <laughs> so I don't advise people on illegal ways to go procuring things, or and I don't advise people on whether or not they should. I do advise people on ways to legally inquire into these experiences. So there are a lot of research studies that you can just start Googling around and you can find a lot of research studies that are actively recruiting people, healthy participants, or people with certain disorders who would be great participants for a psychedelic study. And the benefit of one of those is that you get all sorts of therapeutic professional support to aid you on the, in the process. There are also legal ways. So like psychedelic churches exist. I would be very careful about that kind of thing. Uh, there are psychedelic churches. There are shamans uh, in the U.S. Religious communities can use basically they can use psychedelics as like a religious part of the religious commitment. So now you have all these sort of like spiritual but not religious communities popping up all over the country where you can take psychedelics legally. You got to be very careful. You really, really have to be careful. I would say like, uh, I'm not saying you should go down that route. If you were to go down that route, I would build up a very long-term relationship with people you trust who have been in those very particular settings. Find someone you trust. If you start talking around, you'll find somebody, probably one of your friends, probably one of your mentors has had experiences with this. Like there are ways of finding out more about this and ways of accessing it in legal context. But I would just urge, urge extreme caution, use your mind, be wise about all of this and don't do anything rashly. Like these trips, if they're going to be successful, really can tend to take like months of preparation. And be honest with yourself, you know, if you think, you know, if you have any reason to think that you're psychologically not super steady or have any sort of like history of mental destabilization, don't do this. At least not unless you're being treated in a clinical setting by a practitioner. There are states that are opening up legalization. So Oregon is decriminalized now, I think, for psilocybin. And other states are kind of following suit with it, like, so that practitioners, like, clinicians can prescribe psychedelics. That's happening more and more. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And my hope is that there will become sort of constructive, constrained pathways for people to pursue that will involve, like, a lot of, like, as these things become more legal, I'm hoping there will be a lot more regulation around the process and that there will be kind of a set process for people who have a mental illness. There'll be a set process for people who are just seeking to enhance the quality of their life. So if I can return to the question of the mystical tradition, how do these experiences relate to the religious tradition's mystical experience? And are there any places where they differ? You know, it's not hard to start reading accounts of psychedelic experiences and think that they are coming from a mystic. Like there are many accounts of psychedelic experiences. If you didn't know the context, you would swear it's like, oh, it's Teresa of Avila. Like you would say it's like Julian of Norwich. Like you would swear it's one of these classic mystics. And then it's like, oh no, that's the Johns Hopkins study. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's you would, you would swear that, that they are kind of like a medieval mystical experience. This is where context matters. If you are, you know, if you were raised a, a Muslim and are still a Muslim, it's very unlikely that you're going to have a psychedelic experience in which you encounter the Virgin Mary or Christ. It's possible. Same way for like me as somebody who grew up as a Christian, unlikely for me to have a mystical experience and experience the Prophet Muhammad, right? And so context matters. So in a lot of ways, like if you come, you know, if you are kind of steeped within the Christian tradition, I think you can make a strong case. If you are kind of like steeped in the Christian tradition, the same tradition as the mystics, and you are prayerfully considering a psychedelic experience and like literally praying about it and pursuing it thoughtfully and with wisdom and seeking counsel from people that you trust. 
I think that there's no qualitative difference between the sorts of experiences that you have on psychedelics and the kind of like a, a tr traditional mystical experience that's induced by meditation, fasting, deep prayer, silence, darkness, that kind of thing. Are there sort of Christians within a more traditional Christian sense of that word in the contemporary context and or throughout history that can be sort of touchstones for people on this. I think of a funny example being a lot of people are uncomfortable with certain discussions like inclusivism. And then they hear that C.S. Lewis was open to those types of things. And then they're like, oh, well, maybe I should think about that more. Are there similar sorts of people that the average, say, I don't want to say conservative or evangelical yeah. Christian might have heard of who actually are having these discussions, engaging these these areas that we should be paying attention to? Well, certainly some of these leaders are absolutely having these experiences, but they're uh, on the whole, they're often not talking about it for very obvious reasons. It's a very risky proposition. It's easy for me as an academic to talk about it because I have nothing at stake. Like I don't have, like, I'm not worried about like my presbytery firing me or something. So like, I don't, I, I just, I'm not beholden to any sort of like ecclesial authority. But um, certainly there are theologians, philosophers, church leaders who are open to these things and seeking out these experiences themselves, but are not yet at a point where they're going to be talking about it in public. That being said, there are books that I have found helpful that are not about psychedelics at all, but I think kind of support the sort of thing that I'm talking about here. So any of the cognitive science of religion stuff I find to be really good. Actually, a book that's very helpful on this uh, is Mike Ray's uh, Philosophy of Religion at Notre Dame. Mike Ray's Hidden, The Hiddenness Problem or Hiddenness of God. Sorry, The Hiddenness of God. It's his Gifford Lectures from St. Andrews. And he is, that's a fantastic book because he gets into the philosophy and theology of hiddenness. So like not experiencing God. Why? Why do some people not have access to God? And then he, instead of just sort of giving some theodicy for that, he says, well, actually, contemporary science suggests there's actually quite a few things that we can do to sort of enhance our abilities to perceive God. And he's not talking about psychedelics at all, but like he, his, the argument he builds in that book is the sort of argument that I have actually built elsewhere um, around spiritual technologies. And I would, I would use, I think it would, it could, it, you know, the sort of argument that I would make for psychedelics. So there are certainly theological resources. So anything that, any books or any thinkers who are demonstrating an appreciation of our bodies and the natural and like the empirical world, the material world, as those things being vital to our understanding of spiritual formation, those people are going to be useful. Also, anybody who takes a hands-on approach to belief or experience of God, that's going to be those. That's going to be helpful as well. And then again, there are certain, there are a variety of models. So actually, like North Eastern Orthodox theology. Well, there's debate about what kind of uh, model of God they have, but it's like I would say it's at least pantheism. <laughs> and so there, and then there's of course there's panpsychism, which is not a theistic worldview, but it is congruent with theism, I think. And there's pneumatologies that are useful, like anyone that is talking about the spirit's active involvement in all of nature. Someone like Amos Young, I think, is useful. So there are ways of like situating the psychedelics conversation in different existing worldview debates that can be helpful. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah Lane Ritchie. We really appreciate your time. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate the conversation. And I like, I really appreciate your questions. All right. So that was really interesting. What I was remembering as she was talking was an experience I had, not where I got high. I, I was a good boy. Uh, uh -huh. or not when I did psychedelics, sure. but no, no, I went to the dentist six oh. or seven years. <laughs> Yeah. Is that what the kids are calling it now? <laughs> I went to the dentist to have, I think, my wisdom teeth out 
and they put me on some sort of, I think it was laughing gas or something like that for the dental surgery. Laughing gas? Or whatever it is. I don't remember, Seth. I was... No, it is. Yeah. I, I was listening... I know where this is going. <laughs> I was... I was listening to music while it was happening. I was listening to Magical Mystery Tour, the album by the Beatles. And it was, you know, this is this is purely innocent, Seth. This is me. I went I I was a pastor, a Christian pastor at a church during this story. So like I just went to the dentist man and You met God on laughing gas listening and, to the Beatles. Well, just listen. It it started like the colors started swirling and I felt like I was ascending and I started praying in the middle of the dental surgery and I was awake and I, I think they had to the great God, John Lennon. Uh, uh, I had my mouth uh, 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 and all the things, all the things were numb and my mouth was opening. And I think I started trying to mumble or something and I started praying and the dentist probably thinks I'm an absolute lunatic. Did John Lennon appear to you? No, it wasn't the walrus. Seth. (laughs) I no, but I actually, I actually started praying and I, I didn't, I wasn't visualizing God as a walrus or as John Lennon, I I was very aware that I was on the procedure table, that this was some sort of hallucinogenic experience from the surgery medicine. And in the midst of that, I started praying. And it was a deeply intimate experience where I felt very close to God. It was one of the closest I've ever felt to God. And I remember after my wife, Madison, filmed me coming out of the surgery. And I was like, God is so good. I love God. My mouth is numb from the surgery. I'm like, God is so good. I believe in him. So like I started, she recorded this on her phone. It's interesting because I was a pastor. I I don't have a history of drugs. I didn't even really get into that in high school. I didn't, all the other kids were doing marijuana and I wasn't, but I had this encounter while I was a pastor at the dentist and it was a deeply intimate and positive experience. I'm not going to go back and do it again, but it, it certainly... I felt on a gut level truths that I've intellectually espoused before, but I felt them so much deeper and so much closer with God. And I, I don't know if that means we should be actively seeking these things out. I wasn't seeking that out, but it found me. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to get fired it. now. I'm going to get fired from my... Why would you get fired for going to the dentist? I don't know. People are awkward and uncomfortable around these discussions. I didn't do anything wrong. Fine. I just wanted no, clean didn't. teeth, Seth. We're going to fire you because you prayed while at having a dentist appointment. Well, that's a good point. I don't know. No. So these experiences, I mean, I laugh, but it, because it's it's laughing gas at a dentist appointment as you're getting your teeth drilled. You're literally meeting God while listening to John Lennon. Come on. That's that's pretty comical. You know, the magical mystery tour is coming to take you away. I, I, that'd be closer to a hellish experience if you kept that up for me. <laughs> Oh no, see the Beatles for me. They they get me there. Well, you covering the Beatles Beatles is what I mean. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> so but you know it's funny, you know, I hear a skeptic going, Oh, of course you meet God whenever you inhibit your rational thinking capacities. Of course God appears to you whenever you lose your reasoning abilities. That's why I really wanted to ask Sarah about the actual brain studies, that these are not in a sense generating these experiences. They're just preventing the inhibiting process the thing that allows us to narrow in and focus it allows us to in a sense take in more it's not generating completely novel content it's allowing us rather just take in more of reality it's like reason is are these rational glasses these goggles that we put on that help narrow our vision and focus almost like blinders so we can focus on one thing and dissect it with a scalpel and understand it in isolation 
but then you take the blinders off, you take the rational filter off, and you you might not be able to understand with a rational scalpel anymore. You might not be able to look in close and dissect things, but you are taking in so much more light and a much broader vision of reality, even as you can't grasp it or limit it or understand it or even visually see it properly. And you want to make people feel uncomfortable. This is in the Bible. Paul talks about the third heaven having an experience that goes beyond words. And he talks about seeing through a glass darkly right now, seeing reality. Of course, there's many interpretations of that verse. What is the glass darkly? What does he mean by that? And yet at the same time, I think it's completely plausible to interpret verses like these as Paul saying that our view of reality right now is very constrained. In fact, I just think that's part of Pauline theology, that he sees that the world is much deeper than mm-hmm. what the five senses can allow us to see, especially when he talks about the rulers of the world. And those are rulers we can't see. He talks about the rulers and powers of this world as spiritual entities, entities that go beyond what the five senses are able yeah. to properly see. And so, yeah, the world is bigger than what we give it credit for. Yeah. Well, and I think that's that's interesting because I don't know if Christians can get fully on board with hallucinogenics. That's a much bigger discussion. But they can be temporarily allies in the sense that even someone who isn't religious can go try one of these things. And then suddenly the material world is not the only thing anymore. And there's something broader and bigger, and they're asking broader spiritual questions. And in that sense, we might not be permanent allies. We're sort of like Russia and America during World War II. But for a time, for a moment, they, there is an overlap there where they, they are on the same side, however briefly. I love how Sarah related this whole conversation to the mystical tradition. Often the mystical tradition, the Christian mystical tradition, which again causes many evangelicals to go, there's a Christian mystical <laughs> tradition. Yeah, go check it out. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not as kooky as it sounds like. It's just a term. But the whole point of the Christian mystical tradition is basically generating is how, how what sort of spiritual practices ought we do to sort of reform our life to where we consistently feel the presence and know the presence of God within it. That's all that is. It sounds kookier than it actually is. But what I think is really fascinating is how close these experiences are to the psychedelic experience. And a few of the authors that I've read basically say, yeah, they don't deny that drugs can generate these experiences. What they deny is that the virtue of replacing the practices, the spiritual practices with these, that you want the experience, but without the virtue to sort of sustain you and change you more thoroughly in the process. Yeah, you can have some subtle changes and it can create this, these experiences, as Sarah, I think, rightly points out. But it doesn't have this sort of permanent change of virtue. It doesn't make you more Christ-like in the process. Okay, well, since you're taking that stance here, I'm going to play devil's advocate and go the other way. And Literally devil's the de- advocate. The devil's Tell advocate, the devil's, the devil's plant. I think a lot of what she was getting at in the interview was this can be transformative. This is creating new neural pathways. This is helping people overcome things in the past. It's not just, ooh, I had a good experience of God while I was on the hallucinogen. It's, oh, I've now worked through this issue and I'm leaving here when I'm not on the hallucinogen anymore changed, different, forming new patterns and habits and and growing. So it's not just, oh, I want to have a mystical experience and then go back to doing what I was doing. 
she seemed to at least make it sound like it was formative. It was changing people. It was a form controlled environment with professionals to help you along the way. Yeah. And that's I mean, what that's exactly what the church said. But that's what the church says. Don't go be spiritual in your bathroom with candles on your own listening to Enya music. Come to the church and be guided by a pastor in a community of Christians who are safe and there and guiding you and reading the sacred text to bring you back when you get distracted. I mean, those are guardrails too. I, I mean, good spiritual yeah, yeah. spiritual health only ever occurs when you have those types of contexts. I think I think my point is that that you're you're in a sort of safe environment where these sorts of good experiences are more likely to accrue. Not universally, but more likely to accrue yeah. and have good effects. Yeah. But the problem is most people don't take drugs in clinical trials. They do so on the dance floor late at night and that's when you get these hellish experiences that's when you get people who lose their mind or overdose on drugs dancing and that's when you get dancing yeah. you get dancing <laughs> i think i think yeah to clarify i think that's helpful clarification i think what i mean is the people who just do it willy-nilly there's a reason that we have a sort of negative stigma of these sorts of experiences and i think that's right they're not always good and they're not always helpful yeah and they often just become about the pleasure of the experience and very little about the actual transformative process of that, which is why I think when they do it in clinical trials with the, the good music and stuff like that, that people end up not wanting to go back and get it again. They had the effect. They had that transformative effect, yeah. right? Well, and it sounds like she would be able to get on board with that, which is to say, once we've destigmatized this and it is a bigger discussion that people are comfortable with having, and perhaps we get to a level where it's legal in therapeutic contexts, that's when we can begin to regulate it and put more of those parameters and people won't need to go do it in their basement on their own in isolation where they are susceptible to all the negative forces of the universe, but could be in safer contexts. I mean, I imagine yeah. she would probably agree with everything you just said. She made that exact clarification. The negative yeah. impacts happen when people try to do this on their own in the clinical trials right. when it's regulated. I mean, Christians would already agree with that as well. The The path is narrow and people who are trying to access God without the right parameters and right context built around that are perhaps going to do more harm than good. Yeah. And I would even say that the building up of that experience through the mystical experience, the hard work, the training that, that goes along with it, I think is something that's more ultimate in that sense. I think the mystical tradition has really, by emphasizing sanctification, along with that, as this is a sort of proper reward of sanctification, I think, you know, I'm not going to go around and say, oh, you know, these clinical trials are cheating in a sense, but I still think that there is something higher and more noble about that, which is why I often, when people talk to me, it's like, there's a better path for you. I mean, is it cheating? That almost sounds very workspace. Like you have to work to get that experience. You have to do it's work either way. No, but you have to do the hard work of years of spiritual discipline and fasting to earn that intimate encounter with God. Whereas, no, I, well, let, let it's me, a grace. But, Both are works. No, but, but the it's but a grace it that's given like at the end saying, of the experience. It sounds like you're saying you need to work for that virtue to mean anything. And I wonder if the hallucinogenic encounter as something unmerited as something you haven't built for as i mean that could arguably be divine grace a divine vision a theophany that you didn't deserve that you didn't earn and that you were given and even as i oh, say John. that she nonetheless clarified that the people who do have the good experiences are the ones who put the work in 
who do the background work, who prepare. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, exactly. I, I guess my point is, it is work. As much as your thing about virtue and work is valid, it doesn't work. And as much as it isn't valid, it doesn't work either. So there's t- okay. There's two <laughs> things here. One is uh, your theology of sanctification, and one is your theology of justification. And I think you're confusing the two here. Justification is completely by grace, not by works, right? But good luck finding someone who says that sanctification doesn't require arduous work of us putting in the time and effort to reform ourselves. And yes, that doesn't deny grace. Grace is the reward of that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says that in John chapter 15. And I, my point is, is that this sort, these sorts of experiences are sanctification, not justification. So you're making the parallel to that. But that, to me, makes me feel uncomfortable. It makes me think that these mystical experiences are salvific. You get saved through these experiences. I'm like, no, well, no, 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 no. Don't make that parallel. Do not. It's it's a it's a process of sanctification that you're working toward, and this is the proper reward, the proper salary, so to speak, of a day's work. As someone who's more outward focused and grew up not as surrounded in the Christian community, I'm focusing more on what does this mean for people who aren't religious who then try this and have a religious encounter. I imagine what, great. if the church were more open to these discussions, this might be more of a salvific thing where someone tries this, has an almost beatific vision of the divine, of ascending up into unity with, with God and glimpsing his goodness and truth and beauty. And then they come back out of it and go, I need to change my life. I need to go to church. I need to do all these things. Like I actually think one of the most powerful aspects of it could be that initial conversion experience. Or at least a helpful on-ramp to them Give going... Give people LSD to, <laughs> so they believe in Jesus? No, but you hear what I'm saying is you're at a party, you're trying stuff, you're not religious, you try something, and suddenly you're opened up to a whole world you've never thought about before. That's not... We haven't got to sanctification yet. That's the experience of coming to God that could be happening there. I mean, whether or not that experience is real is a separate discussion, but whether it has to be sanctification or justification is is a difficult one. I could see it being the initial come to Jesus moment, or at least an on-ramp to that, not just sanctification. I would caution against that, and I think she would as well, because remember, she said the priors that you bring, what she meant by that is the prior beliefs, the systems that you bring into this experience often are formative of the experience itself. So if you take a non-Christian into a church who has very different beliefs, they might come out not having the right sort of experience that the church is hoping that they would have, right? Without saying that these experiences are completely created by us. I think there is a way that the way the, what we bring to reality is often what we perceive out of it. So again, playing devil's advocate to fight back against you because you've taken the other side. We could easily switch sides here and keep going. But to take, to, to take the, the devil's advocate position here, I mean, I could see what you come in with is what you work through in the sense of I'm coming into this wanting to process this abuse or this trauma or this instance. Those are very specific things. But I think much more generically, almost anyone who does hallucinogenics is going to come out with a sense that the material world is much less absolute and solid than we think it is. There are higher realms of spiritual things that I'm encountering here that go beyond the everyday. I feel like that's a much more generic, common type of experience than the specific what you come into is what you get. I think that's the sort of thing that almost anyone who does hallucinogenics is going to get. And I think that's very much in line with the religious instinct, regardless of whether you went in with that expectation. 
Yeah, I suppose so. I, I still would caution. I'd still say that. Oh, we're both. We're both you, cautioning. We're both like no, cautions no, no. all what, around this. We both think you should be cautious. What you convert people with is what you convert them to quite often. I think that's that's a very true statement right there. It's that if you convert them to if you use this experience to basically say, see, 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 look, there's these spiritual realities because we gave you drugs and you saw angels or something like that. Like, what sort of conversion is that? Is that a call to a life of sanctification? Is that a, you know, like, what are we calling people to in that? This is why I think the call to a life of actual hard work, of picking up your cross daily, of dying to yourself, it might work. You know, there's a sort of, what you're saying, utilitarian, there's a utilitarian value that it, it'll work though. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it might work for that initial experience. But at the same time, is this calling people to a life of discipleship, not rather than just getting them to believe the right sorts of things? You know, and that's that's where, that's I mean, where that's getting my big more red sanct- flags are thrown up. That's getting a lot more sanctification-ish though. I don't think you need to have all of that stuff up front. I think that's a lot of this type of stuff that you you build up in the sanctification period. It's great if someone fully counts the cost before they give themselves to Jesus, but how many of us actually do fully count the cost? I'm still recounting it decades after giving myself to Jesus, and I'm still baffled by how much I didn't realize the cost beforehand. Also, baffled by how much I didn't realize what I'd be getting in return for that price. But at the same time, I don't think any of us fully counts the cost up front. Whether or not we end up ultimately affirming or not affirming the practice of this, Christians are going to have to start having this conversation more because this is going to just become a bigger and bigger thing in our society. And we need to be prepared to give an answer that is thought through and take seriously these discussions. That or we can all just go to the dentist and experience God there instead. Thanks again for listening to the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. This was only part of our interview with Dr. Sarah Lane Ritchie. Our Patreon subscribers get the full content, including a discussion on marijuana and the possible psychedelic effects that it has, as well as a discussion on the possible spiritual warfare aspects of psychedelic drugs. All that and so much more at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com. Go check it out today. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.